Welcome to Rhetorically Yours. I'm Devin Ralston. This episode focuses on definitions of rhetoric and background on where rhetoric comes from and sort of the influences of of that background. While people were using rhetoric, using words and symbols to influence one another long before the idea of rhetoric was invented, at a certain point, people began to think about how this process happened and how we could talk about it more effectively. Scholars don't know exactly where or how this came about, but what we do know is that the term rhetoric originated in Athens, Greece, sometime in the 5th century. And this is because in the 5th century, Athens was a growing city and people from all over the Mediterranean started immigrating there. And at the time, the city-state of Athens was experimenting with a new form of government, which we're really familiar with in the United States because it's democracy uh, or being ruled by the people. At the time, people's political and cultural identities were tied to the city area in which they lived. So a new system, new democracy, required a lot of different social practices. Um, So how do you resolve disagreements without turning to an authority like a king? How do you make laws? How do you decide what society's values will be? What they did in Athens was to form institutions to help direct these processes. So they formed a senate, they formed jury trials, and they formed forums for public discussion and conversation. Of course, these new institutions were not, people didn't instantly know how to navigate these new institutions. So there there was no printing press, there weren't, and because of that, there were not a lot of written texts. So there's not a lot of circulating, right, media forms. So the main way to convey and distribute information was through speech. And the Athenians needed strategies for talking to each other effectively in juries and forums and in the Senate. Just so happens that a group of wandering Sicilians, they later become... Uh, known as sophists, they start to teach those Athenians how to speak persuasively with the goal mostly of navigating the courts and the Senate. These speech teachers claim to be purveyors of wisdom. The word Sophia is Greek for wisdom. It's also where we get our root term for philosophy or the love of wisdom. So sophists came to be the term for someone who was essentially selling wisdom or selling that that kind of access uh, for money. Because rhetoric and public speaking were essential for success in political life, people were willing to pay sophist teachers a lot of money in exchange for uh, tutoring in the rhetorical arts. A typical curriculum looked something like the following. You would analyze poetry, you would look at different parts of speech, and be instructed on different argumentation styles. And the sophist taught students how to not only strengthen arguments that they wanted to make, but also how to weaken arguments of people that they were arguing against, essentially. Sophists prided themselves 
on the ability to win a debate, a debate on any subject, even if they didn't have a lot of previous knowledge about the topic. And they did this through the use of confusing analogies or flowery metaphors, clever wordplay. They focused on style and they focused on presentation. And sometimes this happened at the expense of the truth. And this is why Plato felt rhetoric was really dangerous. This is also why Aristotle even condemned the sophist for this over-reliance on style uh, and also on emotion to persuade the audience. The critique for both Plato and Aristotle was that there was a disregard, it seemed, for the truth. And I I do believe that this is where some of the negative connotations and negative reputation for rhetoric comes from. It, it It's really born out of this early emphasis on these early teachings where style and presentation is, is emphasized. Despite this criticism, I think you can see that they have a huge influence on developing the study and the teaching of rhetoric. Again, Plato felt rhetoric was dangerous, not just because of the the sophist's disregard for the truth, but also because he felt it didn't have the kind of rigor that scientific pursuits have. It didn't have the critical quality that philosophical endeavors seem to possess. He felt that it was a bunch of what he called random techniques. And he was afraid that that assortment of techniques was helping the wrong people win support. But Aristotle, who was a student of Plato's and who we typically credit with being the first rhetorical theorist, disagreed that persuasive technique was only a way of strengthening weak cases, which was part of the critique that Plato had. Instead, Aristotle saw rhetoric as what he called a techne or an art and technique. So he saw this as an artistic endeavor where human speech could be, where it could be taught and it it could be created as a system for classifying and for studying and learning from, but also for interpreting speeches in this kind of pursuit of skill for public dialogue. So one of the things that I tend to admire a lot about Aristotle is that he sees a possibility in rhetoric, not just for the person who is who is giving the speech, but also for listeners. And we translate this today to be kind of viewers and readers. So Aristotle saw that rhetoric could be both a practice of someone who's putting an argument together and also a practice for the reader or the listener. And this is what I really like about Aristotle's teaching and his framing of rhetoric. And this is where I start when I teach Writing 101. I start with these concepts that we are both interested in rhetoric for what it can do for us as speakers and writers and thinkers, but also as readers and viewers of text. Aristotle argued a few basic points, and I'm going to put these in episode notes on the website so that you can look more closely at them. But this is where my fandom, (laughs) this is where my, my fandom of Aristotle comes from, is this foundation. So Aristotle believed that rhetoric was not just a collection of techniques for slick speech, the way that Plato was 
really concerned about. Instead, Aristotle felt that rhetoric had a logic and rhetoric had a purpose, has a purpose. One of the purposes or how he's defining rhetoric, being able to observe the available means of persuasion in any given situation. And you can see from this definition or this kind of uh, framing and perspective that he's talking about, I mean, this sounds like you're talking about the receiver of the information's point of view. So being able to observe the available means of persuasion in any given situation. Now, I think that can also be from the writer's point of view. So I can, or the writer or the speaker. So I can, as a speaker, understand the moment that I'm in, what we call the rhetorical situation, which includes the occasion of the speech or piece of writing, the sort of moment of it, and all of the different contexts that are going into that particular communication. I can understand the audience and what they need. I can understand what I'm trying to say. For me, this leads to that rhetorical situation when he's talking about any given situation is that interplay and relationship between the speaker, the message, and the audience, which is what you need for an act of communication to happen. For a rhetorical act to occur, you need a message, you need a speaker or writer, and you need an audience. Aristotle believes that both logic and purpose can help us to understand what's available to us as persuasive thinkers and also what is available to us as being persuaded, I think. So by taking into account the specific qualities of an audience, a setting, and an occasion, the writer or the speaker could figure out exactly what would be persuasive in that context. I do want to take a second to talk a little bit about the concept of persuasion. A lot of discussions of rhetoric focus on persuasion because those are its root. I also think this is why there's some negative connotations with the concept of rhetoric. And that is because when we think of persuasion, we think of being influenced and somehow we've interpreted that as not being involved in that influence, not being open that somehow we're being influenced against our will in some way, or that it is an inauthentic kind of persuasion or a faulty persuasion, or we're being talked into something. I think there is a different way to think about persuasion. One of my beliefs is that even informative, entertaining, and expressive purposes are going to have a little kernel a little undercurrent of persuasion in them because if your purpose is to entertain, you're going to package the message in a way that is entertaining. If you were a stand-up comic, the purpose is to get a reaction. Usually that's laughter. Sometimes it's outrage <laughs> out of the audience. You're, you're trying to, no matter what your kind of purpose for the, the rhetorical act is, you expect the audience to be engaged. And so you need some kind of cooperative interplay there, right? Persuasion is about fostering cooperation. It's not necessarily about, it's not what the sophists do, which is I'm going to confuse you until you agree with my message. I think that's unfortunate if that's the kind of persuasion you're working off of. You really do want to foster cooperation and that does take some persuasion. You want to persuade others to take up 
your preferred course of action or your preferred point of view. Now, sometimes this means that you're just trying to convince people to go to a movie with you. And other times it might be, I feel that this particular political point of view or this policy or this this thing I want you to vote on this tax, these things are important. And so here's my argument about why I want you to vote in that way. Persuasion can be active. You can be actively trying to convince someone to see the movie with you. Hey, these actors are in it. This is a story. The preview looks good. Let's watch the preview, right? Whatever it is that you are trying to do to convince someone to go see that movie with you is probably a pretty active moment of persuasion. But where some of the more subtle and passive but also implicit and insidious, right, kind of not always upfront, more like a little bit like the sophist, might be something like advertising's attempts to influence us as consumers to buy a product by featuring a promise of a better lifestyle. Persuasion can be active or passive, and it is not a bad thing. I think that's my main point. Persuasion is not bad. To return to Aristotle, who is basing the foundation of rhetoric in this persuasive purposes. Okay, so that's what we're trying to figure out. So one of the things that Aristotle says is that rhetoric is meant to help us understand what is persuasive in, in a given moment, in a contact. One of the other reasons that I really appreciate Aristotle is the way that he thinks about and suggests we think about rhetoric and logic as being not opposite, but rather necessary for one another. He sees them as complementary and necessary counterparts. Logic requires persuasion and persuasion requires logic. Later in a different episode, you'll see exactly how that might work in practice. Aristotle also believes that The goal of a communication act, the goal of a speech or piece of writing, helps to shape the form and the function of that particular communication act. The logic of a speech is determined by the goals. The logic of a piece of writing is determined by its goals. So Aristotle, obviously, being part of the time frame in which the public forum is the way to convey information, speech is emphasized. But I like to consider rhetorical acts or communication acts because that can embody all different kinds of media, writing, as well, which is, you know, obviously important to me and what I teach. But for Aristotle, speech is king. So he classifies different kinds of speech by their purpose. He believes that the purposes shape the form and the function. And so he actually ends up classifying three different kinds of speech by their purposes. He talks about uh, forensic speeches, which were to be used at a trial, epideictic speeches which were for use at funerals and deliberative speeches which were for use in the senate. These were the basis of his classification system because they had very different goals and very different relationships to both time and action and audience but they are not the only possible kinds of speeches just because they form the foundation of his classification system. I will put information about these things that I mentioned here from Aristotle in the episode notes on our website. 
Aristotle also created a classification system to help us be more persuasive in our speeches and writing. We think of these as, or I call these, we call these, rhetorical appeals. So these are appeals to the audience. These three ways to do that were appeals to logos, appeals to reasoning, logic, etc. Appeals to ethos, which was using the credibility of the speaker, and appeals to pathos or pathos, which were using the audience's emotions. All three of these play a role in persuasion and good persuasive writing or speech needs to attend to all of these. I'm planning an episode to talk more fully about ethos, pathos, and logos. So I'm planning that episode in the coming week. Some people might think that having this kind of classification system is a little simplistic for the variety of communication that we see and hear today. But why I appreciate and love Aristotle so much, is that he is working on making rhetoric an important part of life, but also a system, a systematic area of scholarly study, which means that it's also a central part of human political and social life. And I think that is really important, particularly for this podcast, because People see rhetoric as only in the realm of the scholarly or only with people who have advanced degrees can understand that. And that's just not true. Rhetoric was born out of the public. It was born out of public discussion. Aristotle is demonstrating the possibilities for all of us to become more persuasive and figuring out how to motivate people for cooperative purposes. And this means that every single person can learn how to do that. The Athenians were not any more educated than any of you who are listening to this right now. Aristotle believed this is why he writes the the books that he writes. This is why he writes the book Rhetoric 2,500 years ago or, or so, because he wanted to be able to train other people to utilize this. He didn't think that it should belong to just select groups of people. Because of Aristotle and other people, even though Plato was suspicious, he still helped us theorize rhetoric. (laughs) I don't want to make it seem like Aristotle is the only person, but the Athenians, certainly with Plato and Aristotle, were the first to create this system of rhetoric and to theorize rhetoric, but they weren't the last to think about issues of speech, symbols, and persuasion, And a lot of other people who follow and a lot of other time periods that follow continue this practice. Um, And there's lots of other important rhetorical periods and figures. And there's some commonalities among some of, of of that history. So, for example, by the Middle Ages, rhetoric was a required subject in schooling, in the arts. Part of that training was learning grammar, logic, and rhetoric. During the Renaissance, rhetoricians turned to the arts of speech and letter writing as part of this commitment to eloquence, particularly in the court, but also in the salons of kings and other leaders, as well as the court. In the 17th and 18th century, people like Thomas Hobbes and John Locke and Rousseau and Hugh Blair were really interested in the relationship among rhetoric, politics, knowledge, and what they called human nature. And I'll talk a little bit 
more about rhetoric from that time period on the next episode because I do think it's important. Even when people were not explicitly studying rhetoric, rhetorical processes were at work every time people spoke or wrote or acted to persuade others. So while there's a rich history of academic theorization, there's also a rich history of everyday rhetorical practice. And this becomes the basis for what we study in the contemporary discipline of rhetoric. As I mentioned, Aristotle's book Rhetoric has been studied for over 2,500 years. While we don't have modern public forums in the same way the Athenians did, I do think that rhetorical concepts that come out of that tradition help us to think about our own times and our own challenges. This is where a lot of people bring up things like social media as, as these public forums or something like a podcast as a public forum. Through the lens of rhetoric, we gain important insights about our contemporary world, particularly in terms of identity and power, in terms of visual and material symbols, and in terms of the public and democracy. And I hope to explore these insights more fully as the episodes go on. Once you start to pay attention, I think that like me, you'll have trouble answering the question, what is not rhetorical? Even things that seem to be outside of our desire to communicate, like trees or the arrangement of furniture, are all sites that we as humans give some kind of meaning to. And the study of rhetoric is meant to empower us to decode these messages so that we can be more critical examiners of texts, of the world around us. It helps us to examine our place in the world and our relationship to others. We have so many messages coming at us in any given moment that we really have to quickly and critically analyze those messages in order to understand them. A few things to remember. These are the important kind of cornerstones of this particular episode and of Rhetoric 101 as a foundation. Theorizing everyday rhetorical practices truly is at the heart of rhetorical study and it is where this podcast came from. It's what this podcast is invested and interested in. Because rhetoric grows out of public discussion, it is accessible to anyone and it is not an imposing and solely academic study. My own definition of rhetoric emphasizes the way that arguments are built and for what purposes those arguments are built. Of course, again, I'm thinking about persuasion and I'm thinking about fostering cooperation, but there's typically some other kind of meaning making happening. And that's for me what rhetoric is really about. What, what I study when I study rhetoric is what does this mean? And how does this one particular writer, author, TV show, whatever it is, how does it make meaning for its audience? And for me, that's what the core of rhetoric is about. Whether you're looking at it from a producer or a consumer sort of standpoint. My goal is to help you learn to decode rhetorical messages and figure out when and how you might want to be strategic in intervening into the processes of rhetoric. And you might want to intervene through writing or through speech or through digital means. What are the daily practices where we are creating meaning and how does that kind of intersect with other messages that are circulating? I do feel like this is a lot to think about. So in the next episode, I'm going to answer your questions 
and I'm going to talk a little bit about rhetoric in the Enlightenment period, just a little bit. So if you have questions, tweet the podcast at ret underscore yours. That's R-H-E-T underscore yours on Twitter. Or you can email me at R-H-E-T-Y-O-U-R-S at gmail.com. And you can also visit our website, rhetoricallyyours.com, which is R-H-E-T-O-R-I-C-A-L-L-Y-Y-O-U-R-S, all one word, dot com. Until next time, I'm Devin, and I'm Rhetorically Yours. Many of the historical details about ancient rhetoric came from The Essential Guide to Rhetoric by William Keith and Christian Lindbergh, published by Bedford St. Martin's.